I have counted in this passage 12 reasons why we should submit to evil and love our enemies. 12. Uh, These might be some of the hardest sayings of Jesus. Uh, Do not resist the one who is evil. Give to the one who begs from you. Love your enemies. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, This is one of our favourite passages to not take too literally. Uh, It is incredible to me, incredible to me, that many Christians who are the most fundamentalist and literalistic on the historical and scientific reliability of the Bible, uh, who are the most uh, literal in their understanding uh, and, and their confidence that the Bible represents God and Christ as they are, Uh, people who stand stridently for Scripture's moral codes and values, will read these two paragraphs of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and take away this final message. But of course we shouldn't just be doormats. You can't just let people walk all over you. You need to defend yourself. Isn't it funny that that would be the take-home when Jesus says, nothing of the sort. Three things... Uh, uh, that are, uh, yeah, these are all things that are exceptions to the clear rule laid down by Christ that we should submit to evil. Not evil as in submit to temptation towards evil, but submit to evil people. Give to the one who begs and love your enemies. Uh, For the record, I do think this passage comes with caveats. There are times when it is the wise and godly and and Christ-like thing to resist or speak and be heard. Sure, true, given. But from what Jesus says, does it really sound like those times, like the exceptions are more than the times that we should turn the other cheek? Or do we think, having read this, that the principles in God's kingdom that undergird important things, important things like self-preservation... Are, those, are the principles in God's kingdom that teach us to preserve our own interests really greater than the same principles that undergird submission and selfless love? Fat chance. Twelve reasons. Uh, so here's why there's twelve, because I think there is about twelve. Maybe there's more, maybe less. Maybe I was cheeky and made some of them sound like more. But my goal here is to overwhelm you <laughs> with reasons why we should submit to the evil person and love even our enemies, because that is clearly Christ's point. Yes, there's some caveats there for conversations after the fact, uh, but today we're going to look at the things that Jesus says. Reason number one, we are all equal in God's eyes. This is where you need the Bible open, because I'm not going to show you these words, but they're there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Jesus says... You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, This comes uh, from the Old Testament commands uh, about uh, about how judgment should be carried out and why it should be fair. And so if you injure someone and take out their eye, then a just punishment would be for you to lose your eye in return. Uh, because everyone is equal in God's eyes. Uh, this is, these are designed, this instruction was handed down uh, for the sake of judges, not for the sake of vigilantes, right? So this isn't so that you go out and say, you did this to me, therefore I get retribution on you. 
Uh, that is not what these principles existed for. This was so that judges and courts could sit down uh, and weigh a matter and put a ceiling on the worst consequence that should happen for your guilt. And so, you know, it may be the case uh, that you accidentally take out someone's eye. And so, uh, it's, it's for a judge, etc., to sit down and decide, well, therefore, should this person also equivalently lose an eye? Or was there an accident? Were there mitigating circumstances? Were, there, were they provoked? Maybe the, maybe the punishment is actually less than an eye for an eye, but it should certainly never be more because we are all equal in God's sight. Do you sort of understand the principle uh, that we're building on here? There are maximum penalties which should never be worse than than the evil that's been done. Okay, that's the Old Testament thing. And the principle behind is, is we are all equal in God's eyes. There is no one better. Uh, and, and, the, and the thing is, if, if, if we are left to uh, seek out justice for ourselves, well, we're not very good judges of what's fair when, when something bad has been done to us. We're likely, have you seen children fight? Uh, we are likely to go over the top. Uh, not just do what is fair and equal uh, and, and levels the score... Uh, but to do something so terrible that they might hopefully never wish to do something bad to me ever again. Uh, and so this is to, to uh, embed uh, inside uh, the Jewish nation, as it was given, uh, this principle that we are all equal in God's sight. Uh, judgment, if it's carried out by a judge, should be fair. Reason number two why should we should submit to the evil one and love our enemies is because Christ is our example of precisely that precisely that it says in verse 39 i say to you do not resist the one who is evil but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek turn to him the other cheek also words spoken by jesus who was slapped and beaten and stood there to receive more of the same christ is our example you might remember the story of Jesus uh, in the garden on the night that he was betrayed. Uh, men came to him with swords and clubs and torches to take him away like a criminal, a treatment that Jesus certainly didn't deserve. And one of his disciples, Peter, whips out a sword and in defence chops off the ear of one of the guards. And Jesus says, put your sword away. And he even goes as far as to heal the ear of, the, of his own enemy. This is Christ's example. Don't resist the one who is evil. That same story says that, in fact, when Jesus confessed that he was the one they came to, the guards and those who came for him fell down. They were overwhelmed or overpowered or they paused to worship or something. I don't know exactly what happened, but they fell down and Jesus still went with them. He submitted uh, to their evil designs. Christ is your example. So do not resist the one who is evil. Next in the passage, from in verses 40, 40, 41 and 42, there are three different situations given where someone might ask something from you uh, and what it says is that you should give them what they ask and maybe even more. Verse 40 says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, well, you should let him have your cloak as well. Uh, you've heard me talk about the fact that a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, common sayings in our own language come from the Sermon on the Mount. Here's one of them, there's a few today. Ever heard of the kind of fellow who would give you the shirt off his back? 
So what's going on here? The kind of guy who, um, you know, you ask for his coat, that's the overgarment, would take off his shirt as well and give you the lot. A Christian should be the kind of person who would give the shirt off his own back. We shouldn't assume uh, that people, uh, that those around us need these things even more than we do. It says in verse 40, if anyone, uh, sorry, uh, yes, uh, so, sorry, in verse 40, they're suing you to take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. This person has taken you to court. You've been drawn into a combative environment where what you're asked now in this situation is defend yourself. You're going tit for tat, you're making a case. But what Jesus is saying is when someone else initiates combat, even though your very natural response might be to take a defensive stance or to keep your cards close to your chest, uh, to act diligently in your own interests because the other person's certainly not doing that, Jesus says instead, lay down your weapons, take a generous stance towards this other person, maybe even assume the best of their intentions Uh, Try to appreciate, perhaps, that they are coming from a place of hurt and brokenness themselves and say, you know what, I would rather lose my stuff than inflict further pain on this person. I would rather lose in the deal than risk a relationship. Verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Uh, Have you heard the saying, go the extra mile? That's where it's come from. Uh, the context here is that Jesus' Jewish audience, they were under the rule of the Roman Empire, unhappily under the rule of the Roman Empire. And it was in law that a Roman soldier could require a subject of the kingdom to walk as far as one mile uh, and carry the soldiers' belongings for them. And Jesus is riffing off this exact scenario. He says, do the mile, do it with a smile on your face... And surprise them further by doing another without whining, are we there yet, on the road. Go the extra mile. We talk about the person who goes the extra mile is the person who, you know, in their workplace where they're being paid and compensated already will will always do a bit extra or do a bit of overtime or something like that. We we think about this in, in friendly circumstances, just a person with a good work ethic. But Jesus is saying, no, in 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 the place of oppression, go the extra mile. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Uh, We all know not to give money to someone who asks for money, a beggar, don't we? I agree that's generally true and wise because you don't know if they'll just waste it on booze or whack it in a slot machine or something like that. It's more loving under the circumstances to buy a person food or give them something they need. Although, I do wonder if Jesus' words here could cause us to question that wisdom. Maybe if a person asks for money, it's not our responsibility what they do with that money, but we could just be kind to them and give them money. I had a homeless man ask me once for a packet of smokes. I bought him a packet of smokes. I don't know what you think of that, but these are resourceful people. Whatever you give them, they're going to find a way to do what they want with it anyway. Maybe we can just be kind and say, hey, no questions asked, mate. This is what you want, I'll give it to you. And I'll chat with you for a bit as well. Sure, there's circumstances, different people of us, uh, different ones of us will respond differently in different circumstances. Um, 
maybe you'll prove me wrong, but my conscience is pretty clean about buying that man a pack of smokes. He appreciated it. I was speaking his language. And it's not going to kill him today. Uh, we naturally, uh, we don't naturally, uh, uh, yes, grace and generosity uh, is more likely than we think to encourage responsibility. We don't treat it like that, though, do we? We think that uh, we encourage a person to act responsibly uh, by giving them warnings and laying out boundaries and listing our ultimatums. But then it's God's kindness that draws us to repentance. That's a quote. It's his forgiveness that lets us move on from shame. It's God's love that makes us believe a better story about ourselves and want to live better. It's not all about warnings and judgment. Those things do have their place, but it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. To quote uh, from Titus chapter 2, it's the grace of God that brings salvation for all people and trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ who gave us to redeem himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Did you catch that? I mean, there's a lot in it. Uh, There's a big vision here for what God is trying to achieve. And did you see what he does, what he gives us to bring that about in our lives? It's the grace of God. It's his kindness that encourages us, that spurs us on, that helps us believe a better story. It's his unmerited kindness and lavish love that leads to all that obedience and purity and self-control and all that sort of thing. So let's revisit our reasons. We're only up to number three. It does get quicker. Reason number three, why we should not resist the person who is evil and why we should love our enemies. God has given you his son. This is his grace, his unmerited gift. He's given you even his son. Now that is a thing that surely we wouldn't have even dreamed to ask for. A pack of smokes, maybe. An instant relief. But not his son. You don't ask someone for that. I remember, this is such a small example, but my first uh, semester of university, uh, I nearly failed. I deserved to fail. Uh, I did very little work. uh, And I remember going home in those holidays and just being so broken and upset... Uh, because I knew that my mum had sacrificed a lot to get me to uni. It wasn't a, a small cost. Uh, and and I, I'd wasted it. And I could not bring myself, even in prayer, to ask God for a pass grade on my exams. I couldn't dream of asking him for that because there is no way I deserved it. I just hadn't done the work. My prayer was that he'd give me the strength to bear whatever came my way uh, and to hopefully do better next time. In his abundant kindness, I very barely slipped through. But I think if we, if we knew the true cost of our sins, we would barely be bold enough to ask for forgiveness. If we knew that the cost of our sins was God's own son, bloody and limp on the cross, we wouldn't have asked for it. Surely not. We wouldn't be that bold but he gave it and he held nothing back and we certainly don't deserve him. So we too should give without restraint, even to people who are out to get us 
or people who don't deserve it on merit. God has given you his son for crying out loud. So let's be people who give with a similar spirit. You should count others more significant than yourselves. Assume of another person that if they're asking for something, they really need it. And whatever it might cost you to give them, it's worth it for their sake. Uh, this, is a, this is a, uh, a quote from Philippians chapter 2 where it says, you should have the same mind as Jesus Christ. Consider others better than yourselves because he, though he was God, made himself nothing. Uh, though he was worthy of glory, he made himself a servant. It's not that others are better than ourselves because remember point number one, we're all equal in God's sight. But it's a cue, okay? Tell yourself again and again and again and again That person needs it more than you. That person is more worthy even than me. Now, of course, there's another kind of person who needs to be told again and again and again and again, you are worthy too. You are not worse or less than the people around you. Okay, that that message is there as well. But many of us are inclined to the other way and we need to be reminded, no, the others are more significant than me. Verse 43, he says, you've heard it was said, you should love your neighbour and hate your enemy. Now, this is the last one of the six uh, statements in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, quote from the Old Testament, but I say to you, this is the last one. You've heard that it was said that you should love your neighbour but hate your enemy. But it's the first one of these uh, that is actually a misquote. Uh, You shall love your neighbour is a quote from Scripture. It's a direct quote from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, and it goes like this. It says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbour as yourself. It's quite specific in that sense, uh, that by neighbour, God is instructing them to particularly love their own people. So, love your uh, countrymen, love your brothers and sisters, And Jesus follows the same tradition. Many of Jesus' commands to love focus particularly on love for one another and love for your brothers and sisters in Christ and love for your own family or your wife or your husband uh, or your parents or your children. He's drawing a a tight-knit community together and saying you must love one another. But to say love this person in particular does not mean to not love others. That's not actually how love works. You don't run out. Or um, it certainly doesn't mean to be mean to the people on the outside of that circle God's asking you to love. When you get married, you promise to love and be faithful to this person to the exclusion of all others, which means love your wife particularly. And when a conflict or a tension arises, choose your wife as your priority. But it doesn't mean be cold towards the world and circle the wagons and shut everyone else out. It means nothing like that. But we love to limit things. We love to learn the technicalities. So love your neighbour, yeah, but where does it end? What does it not mean? Jesus doesn't give us that option. We hear love your neighbour and the first thing we think is, but where do our neighbours end? Is it the person just next door? Or is it the person two doors over? Yeah, is across the road technically a neighbour or are they across the street? I need to know who I don't need to love. Instead of thinking, how can I love my neighbour really well and grow in love, which is really all Jesus is saying at that point. Love your neighbour. It's the same game as don't resist an evil person and love 
your enemy, uh, where we spend most of the time on the question, yeah, but what are the exceptions? And so a tradition appears to have been built up around this Old Testament command to love your neighbour to the point where almost the most important part of it became an excuse to not love other people or to specifically hate your enemy, uh, which is clearly a total corruption of the law and a misunderstanding of the spirit of the law. And so reason number five that Jesus gives why you should love your enemies, he says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That's what he says in verse 44 and 45. Look at it on your lap. Matthew 5, 44, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You may be his son or daughter. At the end of chapter 3, Jesus is baptised and the heavens open and God's voice speaks from the other side and he says, this is my son, I love him. And in time, God's own son is cast out and lied about and slandered and arrested under false charges and mocked and flogged and mocked some more and stripped naked and nailed to a cross and mocked again and killed and then stabbed and discarded. That's the father's son. And if you follow Christ... God is your father and if you suffer in this life then that's your family resemblance. But suffering isn't quite enough. Suffering with grumbling and bitterness isn't suffering like Jesus. Kicking and screaming and complaining and going down with a fight, playing dirty while you go trying to take your enemy out with you or at least covering them with as much mud as you can on the way down, well that's not what Jesus did at all. He was quiet. He was misunderstood. He never spoke his own case or defended himself. It's strange, isn't it, to take the accounts of Jesus on the cross as literal truth, as well as his command to his followers to take up your own cross if you want to follow me, and then to sit back and only ever find reasons to stick up for your rights and make a fuss in the very passage where Jesus says, submit to the one who is evil and love your enemies. It's what he did what we must do we should be looking for opportunities to do that rather than looking for reasons why that's not really what he's saying to us reason number six to love your enemies you might save them you might save their souls in verse 44 he said pray for those who persecute you just now i emphasize the point that in his suffering jesus was virtually silent he did speak a few times And one of them was when he cried out the words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And here's Jesus on the cross praying for those who are persecuting him, even in the act of persecution. And the Bible says that in the moment Jesus died, the centurion who was overseeing his crucifixion confessed, surely this man was the son of God. I suspect that man was saved. He confessed. And weeks later, you can read in the book of Acts, The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, weeks later. And it says that the Apostle Peter was in Jerusalem. This is the same city where Jesus was sentenced and crucified. And Peter said this to the gathering crowd. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. People in the same crowd, 
that day would have been in the same crowd calling out for Jesus' crucifixion. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And one or two verses down, it says that day 3,000 people were baptised and became followers and were saved. I wonder if it's because on the cross Jesus said, Father, forgive them. He prayed for his persecutors. Many of them, when they watched Jesus die, they were hard and hardened. But after the fact, somehow, somewhere along the line, they were softened and racked with guilt. Now, you can't create a soft heart in a person who hates you. You can't do it. That's not your job. But you can help. God is more likely to do that work in them through your peace and through your quiet than through your arguments and your self-defence, and your strident standing for your rights. In fact, that's, uh, that's how the Roman Empire became Christian 300 years after the fact, uh, after Christ's death and resurrection. They didn't become a more Christian nation by political lobby groups. I'm not saying lobbying is bad. We have a voice. Sure, we should use it. But that's not the mechanism that God used. It was through persecution It was through gracious accepting of suffering. It was through joy and faithfulness through trials that this people group who was so persecuted, eventually overwhelmed with love and kindness, their oppressors. And even the emperor couldn't ignore it. And perhaps wrongly tried to force everyone to become a Christian. Uh, but, um, But, you know, stories take their twists and turns. Reason number seven to love your enemies. God loves your enemies. What do you, do you know better than God? He loves them. Love them. Verse 44, it says, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God's rain falls on the farmland of godly and ungodly farmers in roughly equal proportions over time. This is God's common grace. If even our enemies receive God's common grace, who are we to think that we know better than God? If on some level God is equally kind to all, then we should follow suit. Reason number eight, to love your enemies, you were God's enemy. Romans chapter five. Oh, I was going to put these ones up. I'm sorry I didn't. Romans chapter five, verses eight and ten. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, while we were God's enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We didn't win him over. He won us over with his love while we were his enemies. Reason number 10. Nine. There is a reward. Submit to evil and love your enemies because there's a reward. It says in verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Now, this might sound like a cheapened reason to do something. You know, you do it because of what you'll get out of it. But it mustn't be cheap because this is God's treasure. We will close um, uh, today with, with Jesus' blessing from the Beatitudes, which we've closed with over the last few weeks, from Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, where Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
Do it for the reward, if for no other reason. Remember, heaven isn't the name of the place you'll go when you die. That's not how Jesus uses the word heaven in that sentence. What he's saying is that right now, where God lives, in the clouds, beyond where we can see, he is laying up a treasure for you, and that in God's good time, you will receive your reward. Sometimes our rewards come to us in this life in little down payments. In many cases, it'll be when God remakes the world and settles all the accounts Uh, that his people will receive their prize. But there's a reward. We don't talk about it much. The Bible is really quite clear that in the age to come, judgment and reward will not be dished out equally. They'll be dished out fairly. They will match what we've experienced and done in our lives. Reason number 10. To love your enemies, you can do it from a distance. Verse 47, he says, If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. It's not always from arm's length, but it can happen from a distance. Sometimes your enemy is in your face or in your home. Sometimes there is no escape. But many enemies we do get to retreat from. Loving them might be as simple as not retaliating. Because you don't have to be in their pocket all the time. It depends who it is. Loving them might be not slandering them. It might be mostly just not doing bad stuff against them. That might be all you're required to do. But it can also mean in this, giving them a smile and an acknowledgement when you see them. Uh, I get to open council meetings uh, uh, once or twice a year with prayer at times. They invite different uh, ministers from town to do it. Last year I read this very passage about loving and greeting your enemies, right before I prayed to them, prayed with them. Uh, I enjoy good relationships with most people I interact with in town. But there are a very small number of people who have hurt me and my family terribly. This day, after reading this passage to the councillors, I walked back to my car and I saw a face on the other side of the street that I recognised. And because most of my relationships are good, I instinctively beamed and gave a big friendly wave. And then I realised who it was. It's my enemy. And I don't say that lightly. If my brain had been quicker, I probably would have avoided eye contact. But God instead had me wave and smile. It was against my will. uh, But God is good. Uh, Writing this down, it came back to me that there have been a couple of times now when one of these enemies of mine has passed me and given me a friendly hello in the street. And I've responded with a grunt and daggers in my eyes. I think to myself, oh, that's her privilege to act like nothing's happened. She's the one who hurt me so badly. She can go on and pretending that's convenient for her. But now I'm wondering if it's not her privilege at all. Now I'm wondering if the privilege is actually mine to give her the brave smile and friendly greeting of a person with a clean conscience and a treasure in heaven. So pray for me to love my enemies too. It it turns out I only do it by accident. Two more reasons, last ones. Love your enemies to be better than them. It's a friendly contest. Think of it like this. Uh, The Jewish people Jesus was addressing had two typical enemies that fell easily for them outside the category of neighbour. Tax collectors... And the Gentiles, the people who weren't from their nation, uh, who weren't Jews. 
Jesus says here in verses 46 and 47 that even tax collectors and Gentiles love the people who love them first and even they greet one another when they see them in the street. That's common gear, that's everyday stuff. That's just normal. Jesus isn't calling us to be ordinary, Jesus is calling us into friendly competition with our enemies. Outdo them. Not because we hate them, but because they convict us, they challenge us. When they outdo us, that puts us to shame. So not to crush them, but to learn from them and improve on what they get right. They love one another, well, let's at least love one another as much as they do. Surely we've got reasons to do it even better. They're generally friendly in the street, well, let's be at least as generally friendly in the street as they are. Let's not be put to shame by people who are just acting normally. Let's go one up, be holy and pure, be good in public and private. Reason 12, the last one, to love your enemies Do it to be like God. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's our goal. He is the mark of maturity. It doesn't mean be without fault or you'll go to hell. This is actually an advance on the last point of competing with your enemies. You look at your enemies to learn what not to do and to the extent that they get it right, well, let's let's get it right too and, and do it better. We're looking over the fence to... To, see, to learn what not to do and, and, you know, and, and take the good but leave the bad. But this is about looking upwards, looking in the other direction, to the goal, to God, His love, His model. Get clues from Him, not about how we should be different from the world, but how we should be. Let's look up to who God is and get our clues for how we should be because of who He is. Now, as I said, there are some exceptions to all of this. There is the person who is so downtrodden and crushed that they have no dignity left, no self-belief, no sense that I really am equal in God's eyes, no sense that I could even be loved by God. There are environments, there are relationships, right, that aren't with our enemies, but with our peers and our brothers and sisters, where I believe we should be assertive and speak our mind, and ask for the things that we want, uh, so that, you know, that's just clear, honest communication. People can accept or reject the things we say, and we need to accept what they say with grace. But not every relationship is an enemy relationship. Most of them are, let's be honest, let's be forthright, let's be gracious and forgiving and generous and accepting with one another. It's not all about enemies. We'll wind up pretty twisted if we, if we only ever think that, you know, we're a little enclave and everyone out there is out to get us. That's a little bit true, but really not. Not really the way to live. At the end of the day, God is for us. Uh, his strength is ours. Uh, his love is all we need. Uh, and our strength is in Him. And we're going to sing. God is for us, but I'm going to lead us first in prayer while the musos come up. Let's pray.